All right, now, we're going to be looking this morning, we're, we're going through a, a, a whole series uh, that started in September uh, called The Gospel Project. It's going to take us three years. Uh, we're on a three-year series, a three-year journey um, to go through the Bible, to hear how God has worked to free his people, to bring us to himself at, in and through Jesus Christ, and, and it's all the way through uh, Scripture. Uh, right in the first week, we, we looked at uh, Luke chapter 24. And in Luke chapter 24, uh, Jesus is on, on a trip. He's, he's, uh, he's just risen from the dead, and not many people know it yet. And he's just out for a walk. And he comes across a couple of disciples. Well, it, you know, it's very intentional on his part, of course. But there's these two disciples that are, that are they're, they're, they're just done. They're like, uh, we're going home. This is it, you know. Jesus died, and we thought he was the Messiah, and we're just devastated, and they're taking this journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and uh, they're walking, and they're chatting, and Jesus comes up, and he says, hey guys, what's up? And they're like, what do you mean? Well, what's, what's going on? Why are you, what are you talking about? And they're like, are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what's been going on? And he's like, no. No, uh, yeah, fill me in on this. And it's like, oh, this, Jesus was a man approved by God. We saw his miracles. He taught with authority. We thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel and save us and, and, and be the deliverer. And it's been three days now, and he was crucified. And, and some of our women, like, they came up with a crazy story that he's risen from the dead, and we don't know what to think anymore. And Jesus, at that point, starts and explains to them from all of Scripture the law, the prophets, the writings, that the Messiah had to suffer, die, and rise again. And so that's kind of our, our, our lens that we're looking at the Bible through over this next three years is that this is all about Jesus and how God has rescued his people. And over the last few weeks, it's kind of been the depressing stuff, right? Because you got... I mean, after the first two chapters of the Bible, it's pretty dark until the last two chapters of the Bible. Because <laughs> you had creation and everything was so, so good. And God created humanity to, to bear his image, to, to take care of the earth, to, to cause it to flourish and to grow and, and, and to, to be co-creators in relationship with God. And we're only, we, we only get like two chapters of that and then we get chapter three. And sin enters the world and the brokenness of relationships and death and disease and struggle and everything that we're familiar with. Everything we live with every day. It all comes crashing down. And we get to, to you know, we get, we get that and we get the first, you know, it's not just murder, it's, it's the, the division of family. It's brother against brother and and in the, the ancient Near East, and even in West, uh, Eastern cultures today, family is more important than individualism. And, and so this first breakdown of family ends up in, in a murder. And it divides family. Sin divides family. And then we, get to, we got to uh, the, the flood, and it's the big story in the first 11 chapters, right? It takes chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, um, that whole story. And central to that is that God has said, humanity is completely concerned about themselves, completely self-centered, and turning away from me and doing everything 
they want, which is destroying the earth and robbing me of the glory and rejecting any relationship with me. And he says that before the flood, and then he wipes the slate clean, and then God says it after the flood too. Like, even that drastic measure did not fix the default nature of the human heart. Noah was a man righteous before God. Build a boat, save your family, plant a garden, get drunk, <laughs> lay in your, naked in your tent, and it just, like, it doesn't take long for us to mess things up, does it? Nice. <laughs> look at your own life, too. Look at my life. I mean, it's like it doesn't take us long to mess it up. We get things going well. We think, ah, yeah, now we got it. And we got this wired, and... Oh. <laughs> well, after the flood, God told people to, again, he, he reiterated this. If we go back just, just a little bit in the story to chapter 9, uh, fill the earth, uh, multiply, scatter throughout the earth, fill it and subdue it. But again, people have a different idea. We want to do things our way. That's a great idea, God. We got a different plan. So turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Again, another very familiar story. Let's see what God has for us in this today. And let's stand as, as we read uh, Genesis chapter 11, 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bit them for mortar. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat. So this, again, is just a beautifully crafted uh, narrative. It's, it's, it's got this center point, this center point where God comes down to see this great big tower that people are building to get to heaven. It's supposed to be ironic. It's kind of funny. Let's build this great big tower with its top reaching to the heaven, and God's like, I can't quite make it out. Let me get a little closer. Oh, I see what you're up to. Kind of a loose paraphrase. <laughs> God comes down 
to see what to see what humanity's up to. I, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, where we're 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 kind of in, in this anthropomorphism kind of language for God, where yes, God is omniscient, but it seems like all the way through, God comes to the the Adam and even the garden and says, "Where are you? What have you done?" You know, He already knows, but He never acts without a relational connection to His people. Well, as we get into this, it's kind of interesting because if, if, if you've read kind of cover to cover and you kind of just read it in order, you wonder why chapter 10 is where it is and why doesn't chapter 10 come after chapter 11? Because in Genesis chapter 10, it's here's all the sons of Noah by their tribes and by their locations and by their languages. And then you get chapter 11 where there's only one language. Okay, what's going on here? <laughs> well, chapter 10, I think, is there because it's the outworking of the covenant made with Noah and his sons that they were to disperse and go and, and settle uh, broadly. And, and so this is almost seen more, not as a result of the curse, but as, as a result of God's grace and his purposes, which actually is what chapter 11 is about too. You know, sometimes we think of this as the curse on humanity to have a lot of languages, but in many ways, this is God fulfilling his purpose for people to spread out over the land rather than congregate in one location and stay put and stay settled. See, because God said, go back, uh, if we're, we're gonna go back a little bit uh, into chapter 9 and, and see that in chapter seven, uh, 9 and verse, chapter 9 and verse 7, God said, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And so that was God's initial command, both to Adam and Eve and to Noah and his sons. But the rebellion of the human heart, this is point number one, rebellious hearts seek to violate God's commands. And the covenant with Noah was to spread out and to be a diverse people. And that's what kind of chapter 10 tells us, that this is, is the outworking of that. But you kind of look at this and you go, well, what was wrong with this people's plan? They wanted to build a place where they wouldn't be scattered so that they could be together, so the family could stick together and not be spread out all over the place and, and, and dispersed. They, they wanted to stick together as a family. What's wrong with that? You know, let's, let's, let's build a, 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 a compound so that we're, we're not scattered everywhere. Let's, let's make sure we stick together. Well, in this case, uniformity and unity actually became idolatry. Let's all be the same. Let's make sure we're all together and let's protect ourselves from being scattered everywhere. That was their fear. It's interesting that their fear becomes their reality. Often, what you fear, you create. It's kind of a human psychological problem we have. <laughs> the, the, the thing you most fear is the thing you will probably make sure happens in your life. We're, we're pretty self-destructive as, as a species. Here, you, uniformity became idolatry and settling down became a sin. God wanted 
humanity to rule over the earth, subdue it, steward it. And that meant we had to spread out, (laughs) not stay in one place. But rebellious hearts seek to violate God's command. God said this, I mean, what's, what's the easiest way to get like a three or a four-year-old to do something? Tell them not to, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, don't do this. Don't, don't get too close to the fire. I'm going to get closer to the fire. You know, don't use that ax. Oh, I'm going to... Well, yeah, it's true. <laughs> and 60-year-olds, okay. Don't, don't just blame our kids, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't do this. Okay, I'll do that. You know, we have this gravitational pull towards doing what's bad for us. And, 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 and I don't think it's necessarily even conscious. Actually, I got this illustration. It's kind of weird, but maybe it'll work. <laughs> maybe it'll flop. I've got this, my middle toe, okay? My middle toe. Back in August, beginning of August, we were at the river, and my, my 15-year-old daughter and I, we were splashing and wrestling around the water, and I went to kick water at her, except she was too close to me, and I hit her shin. And, and I immediately just kind of crumpled into the river. I'm just like, I'll just sit here for a while. The thing is, I must have broken it, because like that, if I wasn't wearing my shoes right now, my foot would immediately go to this corner. Because every time I hit it, and I hit it last night on something, I don't know what it was, but it was like I was on the floor again. It's like, okay, this toe is broken, and it keeps doing it. And you, if you ever stub a toe, you know that you keep hitting it over and over and over again. It's like the thing that hurts me the most is the thing I keep hitting. And, and it's kind of like that with the sinful nature too, right? I mean, when, 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 we, when we don't want to do something, it seems to be the thing we want to do all the time. Or when we're... we're when, when, when God says, you know, for your own good, don't do this, we go, ah, I'm not sure he really meant it. Did, you know, it goes right back to Genesis 3. Did God really say? And that's where the doubt comes in. God commands for our good and our blessing, and yet we want to go a different direction. And sometimes it's completely unintentional. Sometimes it's completely natural. And sometimes it's just a hesitation to embrace maybe what God has really called us to be and do. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells the disciples before the ascension, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So what do the disciples do? They stay in Jerusalem until chapter 8, when a persecution breaks out. And then they scatter to Jerusalem and Samaria, out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And then in chapter 11, the persecution increases again, and the church has to scatter more. And it wasn't because they said, hey, God gave us a mission. Let's go out and preach the gospel. It was, I have to shut you down and start killing a few people to get you to get out of your building and reach the world with the gospel. Because our natural inclination is to stay home and stay comfortable. And the book of Acts isn't always about the great mission of God being fulfilled, but the struggle of the church to actually do it. What do you mean those Gentiles get to come in? Oh, they're not, they eat weird food. 
can I really go into that guy's house? I really have to hang out with those people? You know, and, and a lot of the New Testament is the struggle of this reality that there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus, and the outworking of that and the struggle with that because a lot of these people just wanted to hang out in Jerusalem where it was safe. Everybody spoke the same language, had the same background, knew the same Bible, and they didn't have to deal with all this cross-cultural... <laughs> The security and stability can lead to self-preservation instead of following the commands of Jesus. Rebellious hearts seek to violate God's command and God has commanded us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Let's make sure we're doing our part in that wherever God puts us and calls us and gifts us. Second point, rebellious hearts seek to rob God's glory. The key phrase, the key problem, let's make a name for ourselves, a reputation. Let's make sure that we're the best, <laughs> that we're awesome, that we're above everyone else. Now, the great contrast with this, the reason... Uh, the, the, the reason I believe the authors of, of Genesis switched uh, 10 and 11 around is that chapter 11 contrasts with Genesis chapter 12 where God says, leave your family and your nation and go to the place I will show you later on and I will make your name great. That's the, this is the opposite of the Babel thing. And you gotta see the, the Babel story and the call of Abraham go together. They answer one another. Let us make a name for ourselves. This was to, to, to make sure that it wasn't, it wasn't God that defined who they were. It was themselves. Let's define who we are for ourselves. And this robs God of his glory. And the Gospel Project says, Our rebellious hearts turn us away from God and exclusively to ourselves. We become self-reliant and defiant. Seeking for ourselves what belongs to God alone, furthermore, we seek to define ourselves by our own standards rather than our creators. And it kind of reminds me of in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, why, why do you worry about your, your clothes, what you're going to wear, or food, what you're going to eat? Uh, look, at, look at the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the fire, and the flowers of the field, which die and and even Solomon in his splendor wasn't arrayed as, as the fields uh, around us. I mean, just look at the beauty of the fall trees right now. And, and God says, I care about you more than that. And, and look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Or, or you know, look, look, look at the bears coming into your yard and eating all the fruit off of your trees so that they can survive through the winter. God provides for them, and he cares more for you. Do we really trust God's provision as a loving father? Whose reputation is more important to us, uh, God's or ours? Are, are we willing to wait for him to increase our name? Like, how long did Abraham have to wait? 
You know, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. 25 years before Isaac's born. And then there's only one. How's that? Nations. <laughs> and by the end of the story, you only have 70 people descended from Abraham. The end of Genesis, which coincidentally matches the 70 nations in Genesis 10. It's another big uh, story there and a tie-in, but only 70 people by the end of three generations. It takes a long time, and sometimes we don't get to see God's glory revealed in what he's called us to be and do in our lifetime. The key question here is, whose kingdom am I building? Am I building a tower to reach heaven, or am I seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? You know, archaeologists have found these ziggurats in, in, in uh, what's now Iran, Babylon, Babel, kind of the same, same place. But these ziggurats, I had that picture on the first slide, uh, with big staircases going up, and on the very top there'd be a shrine. And, and the archaeological evidence is that they actually painted those top shrines in a blue enamel to blend in with the sky. So... It's not that, you know, we think that, oh, they just kept going up and up and up. It's just they, they, they painted it so it blended in with the sky, and from a distance you hardly even discern that spot. And that was a shrine where the priests would go up or people would go up and they would meet with the God in that place because that was the connecting point between heaven and earth. And you kind of get this in Jacob's dream, the Jacob's ladder. But they wanted to build the place where they could get to heaven rather than pursuing God himself. Rebellious hearts seek to rob God of his glory. Third point is rebellious hearts seek to live other than God's way. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65, this is coming right at the end of Isaiah's uh, prophecies and message to Israel, the first two verses. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. And it just kind of goes from there. But think about this, to whom is Isaiah speaking? Israel. This is, all the prophets are speaking to Israel. They're the recipients of this text, of this message. God's own people, he is saying, you didn't seek me? You didn't ask for me? A nation not called by my name? That's a huge indictment. A rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, their own desires. You see, rebellion is endemic to post-fallen humanity. It's our default heart posture towards God. We don't want him. We don't seek, and we rebel. In James chapter 3, verse 13 to 4, 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? 
By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder, you covet, you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Default posture of the human heart is to violate God's commands, rob God of his glory, and to live other than his way. We always push the boundaries, don't we? We always, you know, it's like, where's the line? Where's the line? How close can I get to it? Speed limit's 100, eh, 110, 115, well, 120 is fine. What other boundaries do you push? You know, we're always kind of trying to find where the, where the edge is and how, how close before I fall off. We put that toe on the line. We want our way to be the way and we always want to qualify you know, the, the, the commands of Christ. You know, when Jesus says, leave everything you have and follow me, I say, well, that was just those guys. It's, that can't be me. The call to surrender everything to God, to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. You know, we probably won't say it out loud, but we're probably on the side, well, who's my neighbor? <laughs> Do I really have to love that guy that I don't? <sighs> we always want to qualify it. Find the limits. Play within it. And we make individualism our God. It's probably the biggest idolatry problem North America has. Me, myself, and I. And that's exactly what sin is. Sin is rebellion and complete self-centeredness. Essential doctrine number 38, sin as rebellion. Because the Bible portrays people as responsible beings called to respond in faith and obedience to God's revelation, the Bible often portrays sin in terms of defiance and rebellion toward God the King. Isaiah 1-2 is one of many passages that describes sin in terms of rebellion against God. God said, I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Seen in this light, sin is personal and willful disobedience, the raising of a clenched fist toward the one who made us. Remember the bookends of the flood narrative, Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth 
and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. And then we get the flood, and then after the flood, we get this, 821. No. Yes. I'm on the wrong page. 821. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, this is after Noah built an altar and sacrifices to God, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And so sin is the decided, willful, disobedient living. That is the default nature of our hearts. It's our posture towards God. It is our default posture toward God. But, let's go back to Isaiah 65, 1 and 2. This isn't something that the Gospel Project pulled out, and I think it's a mistake that they missed this. What is God's posture toward us? Ready to be sought. Ready to be found. Saying, here I am, here I am, and I spread out my hands. This is crucial. God does not turn aside from pursuing relationship with us even though we continually live in rebellion toward him. He is ready to be sought, ready to be found. And he spreads out his hands continually to our rebellious people. This, this is really good news. This is the good news. In our rebellion, he pursues us. We can go back to Romans 5, over and over. And I, I think we just, we, you know, if you don't have it memorized, this is a key one to always have, have on your mind. Romans 5, 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And over and over we read that God has taken the first step. God stretches out his hand. He is ready to be found. And he is ready to be sought. Well, what do we do with this? Some questions. The head, first of all, knowing this, knowing that we are wired for rebellion, but God stretches out his hand, what are some of the ways that we see self-centered worship on display in our culture and more importantly in our own lives? Because it's real easy to point out there. Genesis 3, self-centeredness, the desire to become more, to determine our own existence and destiny. The elevation of personal preferences and opinion above God's 
commands to us. These are questions you answer kind of on your own. What are some of the ways that you see self-worship on display in your own life? Because we know that's our default, and so this is a diagnostic tool. Heart. How can we ensure that we are seeking God's kingdom instead of building our own? In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God says, God says to Israel, you know, I brought you through. You've had, you've had no lack. Forty years in the wilderness, I provided for you. Your shoes didn't wear out. You had food. Um, everything I provided for you this whole 40 years. Here's the warning. When you get to the land where it's all prosperous, where things are good, when you live in your houses, when you plant your gardens, uh, and, and when, when prosperity and freedom is what you experience in life, be very careful because this will often lead to self-righteousness, self-congratulation, and self-protection, and you will forget God and the work he's done for you because you'll say, hey, look what I did. I built a great house. You know, my crops are just killer every year. Cattle's, you know, boy, have we done good with the cattle this year. And we forget, you know, we can plant, we can water, God makes it grow. But we can be so self-congratulating, especially when we're in a land of prosperity and freedom. And we can forget what God has done and how he has worked to save us. We forget how undeserving and rebellious we really are. So we want to seek God's kingdom instead of building our own name. I mean, we can do things with excellence. We want to do things well. We want to pursue being the best that God has designed us and created us to be. Whatever your, your occupation is, you know, uh, Colossians 3.23, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it well. Pursue it and develop your skills but do it for the glory of God in humility and in service to him. That's the rest of Colossians 3.24. Remember what Jesus said in John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can't do a thing. Again, this is one we want to qualify, right? Apart from me, you can, you know, you can make it, you can do fairly well. There's a lot of people do fairly well in life. But Jesus says when it comes to relationship with God the Father and following me, there's nothing you can do unless you're abiding in me. And so how can we assure, ensure that we are seeking God's kingdom instead of building our own name? We have to hunger for God's glory that dispels the shallowness of my desire for recognition. I think this is a good antidote. A hunger for God's glory that displaces my shallow desire for recognition. Living and serving in humility. Well, what's something we can do about this? Get our hands dirty in this. How can, here's a couple questions. How can we support missionaries and Bible translators who are taking the word of God to the nations? Now, remember, here we've got a situation where Everybody spoke one language, and now there's languages everywhere. 
And uh, we go back to chapter 10, and we've got 70 nations that are scattered all over the place with different languages. And now we've got a situation in our world where, like, there are around, according to Wycliffe translators, at least 7,000 different languages around the world. And 700 of those have the complete Bible in their own language. Only 10%. I saw that number and I went, that's got to be wrong. Let's check that again. <laughs> I was shocked. 1.5 billion people on the planet right now do not have a full Bible translation. 1,500 language groups have only... Uh, the New Testament, and maybe the Psalms. There are at least 2,000 languages still needing Bible translation to even be started. Well, we, we support Laird and Val Salkeld and Wayne and Diane Borthwick, who are with Wycliffe Translators. Uh, Wycliffe Canada is currently has about 500 staff and volunteers. Uh, they are working with 237 languages in 41 countries and funding 18 language projects. And this is just the Canadian, the Canadian branch. Often we kind of look at Babel and we go to the book of Acts and we look at, at Acts chapter two and go, see God reversed the curse of Babel by giving the spirit, but he didn't give them one language. He gave them the ability to communicate the gospel in a variety of languages. God doesn't erase the language barrier he equips people to overcome the language barrier. And the harder part is crossing the cultural barrier. And they both go together. God's people need his word in a way that they understand. In a way that connects with their, their, their way they think and the culture that they that they, that they inhabit so that they can hear this good news of God in a language that, that connects with their hearts. Uh, Romans chapter 10. Because, I mean, not many of us would be very comfortable sitting down with a Greek New Testament today or the Hebrew Bible. So we have to have people that translate this word into, into language we can understand. Um, here's here's uh, Romans 10. But how can anyone trust in or call out to the one they have never heard? And how can they hear if no one has told them? And how will his message reach their ears if no one is sent? Just as it is written down in the sacred teachings, how beautiful are the feet of the good story bringers who tell about the good things Creator has done for us through the Chosen One. This is from the First Nations New Testament. As I've actually been enjoying this because they, they unpack like the meaning of names. Like we think Jesus is just a name. It actually means Creator sets free. Yahweh, Yeshua, Joshua means Yahweh saves. Uh, is, is kind of interesting. Almost every name in, in the New Testament, they translate into what that name actually means. 
And that's powerful. Even though it has to be in English, I mean, there are, there are uh, works now to, to get, the, get the Bible into the First Nations languages, but many of them, of course, speak English, not by choice. But taking the Word of God into the heart language of the people whom we're trying to reach. So I know we, as a church, we, we support this movement through Wycliffe, through Gideons and others. Get the word of God out there so people can hear. But more locally, how can you share the gospel with those around you who speak your language? I mean, there's not a big language barrier around here. So how do we do that? Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Use great wisdom as you walk among those who are not yet part of the sacred family. And make full use of every opportunity as you represent our honored chief. Think before you speak. Let your words be clear. Then, like salt that brings out the good flavor, you will know how to give each person the right answer. Like that, use great wisdom as you walk among those who are not yet part of the sacred family. Think before you speak. Let your words be clear. Then, like salt that brings out the good flavor, you will know how to give each person the right answer. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. It's kind of what we're used to hearing. Make the most of every opportunity. Be gracious in your speech so that people can hear when you share the gospel with them. Well, the default position of the human heart is to rebel against God. But God is ready to be sought, ready to be found. He continually says, I am right here. And I spread out my hands to you. God does not turn aside from pursuing a relationship with us. In our rebellion, he pursues us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning in this This kind of concludes the, the first 11 chapters of Genesis and we find that humanity just continually, even when we get the best, the best situation imaginable, where everything is provided for us, where there's not a hint of shame, where work is a joy, uh, where we're provided for with everything we need, we still want more. And we become dissatisfied with what you provide for us. And we seek a name for ourselves. We seek to transcend the limits that you have placed on us as, a, as part of your creation. And even abandoning the, the, the reality that you've created us to be your representatives here on earth. So Lord, we thank you that you continually reach out, that you stretch out your hands to a rebellious people, that you are ready to be sought and you are ready to be found. Lord Jesus, I ask that um, 
you would help us to seek you. That you would reveal to us the idolatries of our hearts, the ways we want to rebel against your commands. Lead us back to your ways. Sin is willful disobedience. But full obedience is also an act of the will. Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us into all truth. Remind us of what you have said. Open our hearts to what you want us to be and do in this day. Go before us in our week, and as we encounter people, may we speak your truth in love, knowing that people need to hear the good news that Jesus Christ has saved. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.